Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights. This is our sixth session, and we are very lucky today to have Roy Renani from Chorus giving a talk on adapting to a remote first sales strategy, which is something that in this current times is obviously very relevant for a lot of people and a lot of companies. Thanks, Anne. And thanks to you, Roy, for doing this. So I actually first met Roy in a cafe in London when he was raising uh, the seed round for Chorus. And I was lucky enough to be a small angel investor in Chorus long before I started Angular. In fact, I was in the process of figuring Angular out when I was talking to him. What was really exciting about the Chorus story when, when Roy and Michal originally came to explain it to me was they were basically trying to invent the category of call analytics and saying, you know, the technology was finally available sufficiently cheaply to analyze sales calls or any kind of call. Um, and actually deliver insights on those calls. And the company's executed really well since then. They've gone on to raise uh, $53 million from Emergence Redpoint and Georgian Partners. Scaled very nicely, very impressive list of customers. And probably most impressively, they are really inventing a category. But what I, I wanted Roy to talk about is adapting to a remote-first sales strategy, which is something that a lot of companies these days are struggling with. We are doing everything over Zoom these days, Zoom or the equivalent. And because a big part of what Chorus does is analyze those calls and help companies optimize those processes, I couldn't think of anyone better than Roy to help us think about that. And so, Roy, we're, we're thrilled to, to have you, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be an infinitesimally small part of your growing cap table and look forward to hearing what you have to say on this. Awesome. Thank you, Gil. Thank you, and It's really nice to be here. Well, well let's get going. I'm going to try to keep it pretty quick and content-rich and then keep most of it for the Q&A because I think that's what's most interesting. So I was asked to do a really quick intro first. So my background, I'm originally from Toronto. I studied engineering. I spent four years working for an Israeli enterprise software company that was in the data replication space, which really made me fall in love with the, with the startup scene and what you could do with a really amazing group of people. It also made me realize that anything could become a fun, sexy problem, even data re- replication if you go in deep enough. I spent a bunch of years consulting at Bain. I went to Stanford for business school, and then I ended up getting hired into uh, a fund called Innovation Endeavors as the first employee back in 2009 and realized that as much as I loved the idea of venture and helping entrepreneurs, I wanted to have the experience of building a company myself to, to, to be more helpful. And so in 2015, I started Chorus with two co-founders, Michan Russell. And since then, we've grown the business. We're, we're over 100 employees now. And like Gil mentioned, a lot of our customers range from early stage startups, high growth startups, through to public companies like Zoom, Adobe, Qualtrics, MongoDB, Segment, many others. And we spend all day, every day thinking about sales and working with some of the best sales teams in the world. And so I'd love to share some of the things that we learned about remote first selling with you today. So here's the answer. What were, what were the top five things to take away? The first is I'd like to review some data that we've 
pulled out of our chorus analytics across our hundreds of customers and some of the new trends that we're seeing. And then the question, of course, is, is this a new normal or is this just a temporary blip in the way that we sell? Number two is to take care of your people. Number three is to expose blind spots through data and transparency. Number four is to reimagine the sales funnel. And number five is to formalize your hiring, onboarding, and information sharing. So we'll go through them one by one. Number one, we looked at the data, and the data tells us that there's been no drop in terms of the number of recorded meetings that people are having per week. And so initially, we might have thought, wait a minute, people are going home. We're, we're less clear on, you know, are people still buying? Are people still, you know, are, are businesses still running or have we completely shut down? And our data tells us that people are still taking meetings. And so the first thing is keep going, right? Don't stop selling. Don't stop trying to meet with people. In some cases, it's even easier to meet with people because they have more flexibility when they're at home to jump into a Zoom meeting than they do when they're in an office. The second one is that we saw uh, a clear increase in the amount of executive presence in meetings. And so more directors and exec level managers joining sales conversations. It's hard to know exactly why this is the case. Um, in the short term, we believe that it's related to tighter spending. And so you need to get more senior into an organization in order to get anything done. And we're seeing people join more meetings. It also means that on the selling side, you want to bring more of your senior folks into those meetings in order to match the seniority of the prospects that are joining. Number three, and this is related to the economic environment, where we saw a very large increase in the number of CFOs that are joining meetings, especially over the last month. And a big part of that, of course, is because of the uncertainty around the economy, although you wouldn't know just by looking at the stock market these days, but companies are tightening on cash. And so there's additional data that I didn't include that showed that for, for a while since COVID, there's been an increase in the amount of discussion around payment terms and specifically net 60, net 90 day payment terms, quarterly payment terms, whereas the standard in SaaS, as I'm, I'm sure uh, is, is the case for many of you, is really about annual upfront payments with net 30 days. And so what we're really seeing is that people do want to buy. You need to build the case for the CFO. You need to overcome that hurdle. And you may get pressured to play with some of your payment terms so that companies can retain cash. So that, that is a highlight of what we've seen in terms of the data. For any of you that want to go deeper into that, you can go to our website, www.chorus.ai slash the daily briefing with hyphens between the two words. And all of the data that we've been releasing over the last few months are on the website and you can go into more detail there. The second one is about taking care of your people. And I know that this is one of those things that may sound like flu-flu, just very, very fuzzy, et cetera, but it's, it's really important. In sales, 80% of deals don't close. And that's true even when you do everything absolutely right. And so for those of you that, that haven't had the experience of selling yourselves, it's a very, very emotionally difficult thing to do. 
And that's when everything is going well and when you do everything right. There was some research that was published, I think it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, which is that if you actually did a test of Americans right now, a third of them would diagnose as having clinical anxiety or depression. So this is this is a serious thing. And your sales team um, are the front lines of your business. Your customer success team are the front lines of your business. And it reminds me of something that Eric Yuan, Zoom CEO, told me a few years ago, which was why he focused his entire company, his entire message on delivering happiness, happy employees, happy customers, and so on. And the thing that he told me was, look, if you have a sales rep who's not happy, how are they going to transfer that momentum to the customer, right? If they're unhappy, if they're depressed, if, if they're concerned about something, that gets translated. And especially now when you're in a Zoom first world, that can be the difference between uh, a prospect progressing down your funnel and getting interested or bugging out of the sales process. So the question is, how do you think about your team? How do you think about your sales team? How do you think about building that momentum, that positivity, and that positive culture? And so I wanted to share a couple of ideas that we've seen work really well at Chorus and and also through some of our customers. Number one, daily or even twice daily check-ins, especially for the more junior people on your sales team. They may be in small apartments, they may be sharing apartments, they may not be doing very well. And so just check in all the time. Number two, over-celebrate. We have a wins channel on Slack and we look for reasons to celebrate everything. There are new products like Loom and CloudApp and others that let you record videos and upload them so that people can watch them asynchronously. Think about doing things like that. If somebody, somebody does something really well, just pick up the phone, give them a call. If they, if they have a tough loss, if they have a tough meeting, just find a way to do that equivalent of somebody gets off a call, it went terribly, they wander around the office just looking for somebody to pick them up. Stay on top of those things to get them back on the horse. Number three is invest in your people development and coaching. One of the things that we saw in the data is the amount of engagement from managers in our product, the Chorus product, and just seeing how much it's increased over the last couple of weeks. When you can't be there in person, finding an opportunity to to review those meetings, give people uh, positive, constructive feedback goes a long way. And so we're seeing a lot of our customers doing that much more than even they used to, which which was already quite high. And number four is reviewing game film. So if somebody does have a particularly hard meeting or particularly good meeting, get everybody together into a Zoom, review it together, talk about it, commiserate. Like I said, it sounds flu-flu, but I I can't stress enough uh, that the happiness and the positivity and the energy of your sales team is going to translate into results. Learning number three, expose blind spots. This is one of those things that I think COVID and everybody shifting to work from home, um, I think it's teaching us to do things that every good company should be doing anyways, but maybe they haven't been. And one of them is to focus on outcomes and impact as opposed to effort and FaceTime. In sales, I'm continually surprised by how few 
companies, how few frontline sales managers have access to all the underlying leading indicators that your team is working and that they're working on the right things, that they're executing on your strategy. And so if we think about our hypothetical worst company in the world, all they would do is at the end of the quarter measure how much revenue was being delivered. And that's obviously very risky. The best companies have reporting that's available not just to leadership, not just to the frontline managers, but is transparent to every rep in the company that shows you this is how many calls we're making. This is how many emails we're making. This is how many untouched opportunities we have. This is how many stalled opportunities we have, et cetera. Because that creates an environment where without a manager having to tap somebody on the shoulder, reps feel, maybe pressure is the wrong word, but, but they feel the need to, to deliver because they know that you know this data is available to everybody. It's going to be reviewed every week. And nobody's going to call them out on it. We're just going to we're just going to see it. And so when reps can get access to that information and they say, "Oh my goodness, I had no idea that Anne was doing three times the activity levels that I'm doing. No wonder she's crushing it." So that's number one. Number two is don't assume that anything still works. Um, Almost every company that we know of has revisited their messaging in the last two months. You may have three, four, five, six different messaging points that resonate, but I would be surprised if what was historically your number one or number two messaging points should still be your number one or number two right now. As an example with Chorus, one of the top messaging points that we used to have was that we can cut your onboarding of new hires in half. And that's very compelling to many people, but with most companies that have just gone through reduction in force and have slowed down hiring because of the uncertainty, we should never use that. We should take it out of emails, we should take it out of ad campaigns, we shouldn't be spending time on it in phone calls. And instead, we should be asking people, well, how are you thinking about creating visibility and shining a light on those blind spots for all the calls that your reps are taking from home, as an example? One of the other things that we found is that sometimes your very best reps, which were the ones that could take the things that were working and just do them diligently day in and day out, are struggling to adapt. And so there may actually be new other reps on your team that are really creative in the moment and are trying out new messaging, trying out new emails, trying out new talk tracks that are working much better. And so I would would inspect, this connects to point number three, personally, inspect the work in progress, right? Personally inspect what those cold calls look like that are working, inspect those discovery calls, inspect the negotiations that you know what's happening on the front lines, what's working, what's not working, and so that you can encourage people to incorporate that into your revised playbooks. Go on to the next one, which is reimagine your sales funnel. You know, it's funny, there are a lot of things that I think we take for granted and I'm a big believer in nothing happens by accident, right? So even if you're, even if you have that bluebird deal that just comes in and it's a $250,000 deal and it comes in out of nowhere and all of a sudden it helps you make your quarter. Um, many sales leaders that I've met come to rely on, on bluebirds, right? So they'll, they'll, for example, say, oh, listen, we're a little bit short coming into the end of the quarter, but it's okay. We always tend to get two or three bluebirds out of nowhere, right? They just contact us, they contact the rep, they want to move really quickly. What you find when you dig in really, really deep is that none of those things happen by accident, 
There was something that happened. There was something that somebody did. Somebody was maintaining a relationship. You saw them at an event. You sent them an email. You did something. And so I would encourage everybody to, to avoid surprises. Go back over the last three to six months and ask your reps, what are all the specific things that you've done over the last three to six months that are impacting revenue today? And ask yourself, are we still doing them? Or are we, are we doing something instead that would work? For demand generation in general, online events was a big thing for many people. So if you assume that there are going to be no more online events for the next 12 months, how are you revisiting your demand gen strategy? What would change? For mid-funnel deals, there's always a question around, well, how can you recreate serendipity? There may have been certain things that would just happen, right? You invite people to a dinner, you see people at an event, you can be really anything. But there's a lot of serendipity that happens in deals. Uh, so how can you recreate that? How will you replace some of the jobs that maybe an in-person event would do? As an example, for many companies that have social proof around G2 Crowd or Trust Radius or these other review sites, you look for opportunities to meet clients uh, or customers at events. You might have a booth set up. They come in, they'll fill out the review on the spot. So are there different things that you could do to make that work? One of the things that we did one or two weeks ago was a wine tasting. And it wasn't cheap. You know, it was probably $150 to $200 per person, but we invited executives from customers from in-process deals together into a Zoom, and each person got a delivery of different wines for the wine tasting. And we did small group sessions within Zoom using breakout rooms that were facilitated with different folks from within Chorus. And it was an amazing event because, first of all, it was different, right? Everybody's looking for some experience, right? They're not going out to bars. They're not going out to restaurants. They're not doing all of those things. And it was still small and it was intimate. And so it was a great way uh, for them to get to know us, for them to get up to know other customers and so on. When it comes to something like trials, I asked our top reps what they've been doing differently now. Because trials for us is something really critical. You, you'll typically have anywhere from 15 to 80 sales reps that will get onto a trial as well as managers and things. And, and a big part of that is creating a great experience for people. So how do you do that when you can't show up in person and train you know, a room of 100 full people? And so some of the things that our reps have done is they've done small rep trainings, right? So keeping it intimate, so you're not having a Zoom with 50 people in it, but smaller groups followed by office hours, right? You can just set up a Zoom, you know, two or three times a week for 30 minutes and just have people drop in in order to get that one-on-one -on -one time. Do the same thing with the managers or whoever other stakeholders you work with and meet one-on-one -on -one with your champions really often. We've actually found that it's easier to get 15 minutes with somebody now over Zoom than it was before because it's almost, it's almost natural now for people to just jump onto those Zoom meetings. Number two, really look for ways to build intimacy. Uh, with people, like one of our reps said that one of her biggest focuses is getting people to laugh, right? Just just be really authentic, find a way to connect with people. She was saying that she's reviewing all of her past meetings thoroughly so that for every single person, she knows what they care about and she has a way to engage them in the meeting. The equivalent would be right now me, me reaching out and saying, oh, Gil, I remember when we spoke last week, you had mentioned that this was really, really important to you. And so I want you to pay attention to this and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. 
and then do the same thing with Anne later in the meeting, and then do the same thing with every other key person that's in that meeting to pull them in. And with Chorus, of course, you can look at the data on the engagement. You can see, are you engaging every key person in those meetings? Are you getting them to talk? And then number four is just really a question, which is, what's the other side of the coin? We've had certain customers that have told us that they've cut certain expenses by 80% and they've seen no impact on performance. And so it might also be an opportunity for you to reimagine the things that you're doing that may not be impacting results and reimagine those. And the last one is about formalizing your hiring, your onboarding, and your processes. I have a love-hate relationship with Slack. We use it a lot at Chorus, but man, it is not a good place to exchange information. And especially right now with everybody remote, it feels like Slack is the place where everybody goes to ask questions, to talk about stuff, to share knowledge. And of course, it can be extremely distracting to people. My perspective is that when things go to Slack, it is an indicator that there's a broken process somewhere. And so I would encourage all of you to think about if you go through Slack and you're seeing certain things that are coming up over and over again, what is the ideal place to put that? Because in an ideal world, I think people will know where to go. You'll have structured topics, questions, best practices, et cetera. And you avoid people just having to go into Slack and, and search or, or ask questions and things like that. So remote first, this matters even more because you want people to know exactly where to go for this type of information. So one question for you that's sort of top of mind for a lot of people, and, and you touched on it indirectly, but the whole question of Zoom fatigue, both for reps and for customers, what is your view on that? I mean, I've had 14 Zoom calls in a day, which was my record, and by the end of it, I'm, I'm ready to kill myself. I guess there's some sales reps that that's their life currently, but others for whom that's a new experience, and for customers that are not used to this, they're suddenly on Zoom all day with their team, and now they're on Zoom with some sales rep, it's like the last thing they want to be doing. How do you think about that? This is one where I'll say, I don't think I'm an expert. I think I'm living this the same way that, that all of us are. What's worked for me personally is for a lot of meetings that don't need to have video on, I don't have video on, right? So for the people that I'm closest to, for example, if I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one or something like that, uh, I just give them a call or I go for a walk. And you change your environment. When we were in the office, many times I would, you know, take people for a walk. You go out, you grab a coffee, you walk around the block a few times and you catch up. And I think that for the people that you're closest to, that's fine. You don't need video to be on for absolutely everything. For customers, I think it's the same thing. What I've typically found is you don't have to use up an entire meeting. The, the more junior, I think the salesperson is, or maybe the less confident they are, the more they think that spending more time with somebody is a good indication that things are going well. But with the more senior somebody is, if you can make your points in 15 or 20 minutes to the point where they, they really get it, they see the value, they're asking the clarifying questions, and you have a concrete next step that they've bought into, you can end the meeting early. And nobody loves anything more than ending a meeting early. So I think that the place where you really start to get Zoom fatigue is when you have meetings that could be 15 or 20 minutes stretching out into one hour meetings because reps don't feel comfortable uh, just saying, hey, we can end this right now. 
I guess jokingly, you could just tell somebody like, listen, if we can, if we can get through this and I can convey all the value to you and there's a concrete next step, we can get out of this in 20 minutes and then you just move on. The audio video thing is something I've struggled with. I'm sort of, I guess, because we're meeting founders, it's the video is important, but you're right. I've, I find that with anyone that I know, the audio is almost more effective than the video and the going for a walk with the phone in my pocket is actually a better, it's just a better dynamic. And I actually wanted to ask you about sort of one shot sales versus sort of multi-step sales processes. And I know Chorus, I guess, works with with different kinds of customers with different kinds of sales processes, but have you seen different impacts on if you're doing multiple calls with a long sales cycle versus a quick, you're selling in that one instance, are there different impacts depending on on the length of that sales cycle? It's an interesting question. So, I mean, for transactional sales, transactional sales are never going to be in person. They'll all be over the phone. Or for example, Uber Eats is a customer of ours. All of their sales are are over the phone. They're not even doing Zooms. They're calling local restaurants and, and so on and so forth. And so there isn't going to be much of an impact that way. When you do get into the longer sales cycles where you need to multi-thread, you need to get more people involved, those are happening over Zoom, but I mean, they've always happened over Zoom because once you're selling to an organization that's above a certain size, there's always going to be somebody who's dialing in from home or dialing in from another building or dialing in from another office or another location. And so I really think it's less about the fact that you're now selling over Zoom where you didn't before. And it's more about uh, everything else that's going on with COVID. What's your favorite non-chorus related sort of non-obvious sales metric. Have you found a metric that you think is is interesting that you're able to share with us? I know, of course, in the business of generating some of these metrics themselves, but just in terms of sort of funnel management. Oh, that's a great question. There's two very, very simple things that you need to do in order to generate revenue. One is to, to make sure that everybody's working hard, right? I call that the hustle. And the second one is quality of the hustle, right? Um, You should be looking at the number of meetings that reps are having. It is an extremely good indicator of whether or not those reps are gonna ultimately perform. And so you can get that data out of a platform like Chorus or there are other systems that you can do where you look at calendar information without being able to double click on what's happening in the meeting. That will tell you that as well, but it's a very, very good indicator. If if you're an SDR and you're generating pipeline, the question is how many conversations that are, for example, longer than two minutes are you having in a day? If you're a sales rep, it's how many meetings that are over, call it 10 minutes long, like Zoom meetings or phone calls are you having? You can't get around the hustle, right? There's no, I don't think I know a single sales rep who's successful. That's just perfect when they get somebody on the phone, but they're not constantly just queuing up those meetings. If you see that there's an issue there, then you need more metrics to be able to double click. Well, are they not able to generate new meetings? Are they not able to convert those meetings into next meetings? And so on and so forth. But I think that that ends up being probably one of the best leading indicators of how people are doing. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot in the venture world about sort of product founder fit or f- founder market fit. Would you say there's like salesperson product fit? Or would you say that a good salesperson can always be trained to sell any product? No, no. I mean, there's very much a profile. 
I think for every for every salesperson. If you look at, there's a great book by Mark Roberge, who was the CRO of HubSpot during their meteoric rise. And he was a former engineer that took over sales for the first time. And one of the things that he talks about in the book was the importance of creating uh, a profile for your sellers and having a strong hypothesis on what are the skills or the capabilities that they need to have. So for example, if you're selling a platform like Chorus, this doesn't exist. Most people don't have budgets for it. It's very, very different than, for example, if you're selling Zoom, where people understand the platform, they're already using it, there's an existing budget for it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. With Chorus, you, you need to be able to evangelize the problem. You need to be able to deeply, deeply, deeply understand what it is that the people that you're selling to go through. What are their challenges? What are their pain points? How do we solve it? And, and so on and so forth. When you're selling a platform like Zoom, so much of it is deeply, deeply, deeply understanding the way that large companies buy, right? So who are the people that we need to get involved? How do we navigate the organization? How do we help our champions build the case? And these are all things that you have to do with a platform like Chorus anyways. But but if you can't get people excited about the technology and the platform, you're not going to sell Chorus. You're just not. And so I think that every company should, when they're starting out, have a hypothesis about what it takes to sell it, understanding your customers, understanding your buyers, understanding your market. And if you want to be really data-driven like Mark Roberge, measure it out, right? Test people on it when you're hiring them, see how they're doing, look at the people that are successful and, and then refine it over time. And so in the early days, you actually do want to try to hire different people with different styles to see what works because you don't really know in the early days. If you think through the early days of Chorus, and I remember you had a few early wins in terms of interested early flagship customers, how important was looking them in the eye, establishing trust to those early sales processes for you? Do you think you could have closed those accounts today over Zoom or the phone? And what do you think are some of the lessons from those first few accounts for you that would carry over today? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I'll start with probably one of the learnings. Number one, I think that for us, some of those flagship wins where I was the salesperson, I closed them were mistakes. So for example, I spent probably nine months closing Google as a customer. And at the time, I thought it was amazing, right? You, you share it as a win to the board. Uh, and by the way, they were very happy, right? We got them onboarded, extremely good net promoter scores, et cetera, et cetera. But when I look back on it, what I realized was I spent nine months learning about Google's buying process, right? And legal and security and just all of these other things that had nothing to do with building a product that people love. And in the early days, I could have taken all of that time, all of that energy. I probably could have onboarded 20, 30, 40 other customers maybe, and maybe they, they wouldn't be paying us as much as Google and, and they wouldn't have the name Google, but we would have had so much more experience about how people buy the software and how different organizations work and if our tech would fit into their organizations well and all these other things that you learn. One of the learnings was certainly be really clear about the goals that you need to set and what you're trying to optimize for and be willing to say no to certain deals and, and certain customers for now. You can always go back to them. To your second point around trust, I, I, 
it, it depends again on what you're selling and how big a deal it is. For us, um, there were people that really did take a chance on us. And when people are buying your software or, or even just setting it up as a proof of concept, they are putting their reputations on the line to, to a certain extent. It depends, of course, on how easy it is to set up and how big of a process change it is. But in sales, for example, if you're asking people to now use a mission critical piece of software that's brand new and change the way that they work, if your software is buggy, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't deliver, all of these things, that person that brought you in is going to have egg on their face. And so we were very fortunate early on that I was able to use my network to find people that were willing to, to put us in. Uh, and we had to make sure that our software was above a bar where that person is not going to be embarrassed. And so I, I think it is important, but it depends a lot on the software. So I don't think that there's a single answer. Great, thank you. We're now gonna turn over to audience questions. So the first person that's gonna be joining us is Aero from Finland. My question revolves around uh, measuring of your pipeline and measuring activity, especially we're very early in building the, the scalable sales process and iterating almost on a weekly basis, <clears throat> even running like two or three experiments a week with like different approaches, different channels and so on. And sometimes it feels like building the metrics around it takes more time than the actual experiments is, is itself. Do you have any uh, tips or tricks into sort of how to make that process a little bit smoother for the whole team? The first thing is, can you do the equivalent of just a whiteboard, right? So like just to give you an example, in the early days, it is a pain to go instrument all of this stuff. But what's not a pain is just to say, hey, every time you have a conversation, go walk up to the whiteboard and update the number. And, and there's something very powerful about a sales floor, everybody together, and seeing somebody get up and update that number. It, it shows a win, it shows momentum, it shows activity. And so I would just be curious, is there something that you could use like an online whiteboard like Miro or, or something like that, where you're just tracking you're asking people manually to track it and you're rewarding through a gift card, right? Like, or, or something at the end of the week, the people that did it really well. So that's number one, right? Don't overcomplicate it in the early days. Just find the equivalent of a whiteboard that's shared for everybody that everybody can see. The second thing is there is software. I, I think, unfortunately, you need to pay for most of it. But for something like Atrium, Atrium will just take all of the activity that reps are doing and literally spit out 50 different dashboards of everything you could possibly want and recommend to you what you should be looking at and paying attention to. So without knowing specifically what types of metrics you're looking at or, or experimenting with, I would just say start manual. And if you can afford it, look into software like Atrium to report on activity. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess the answer is just it's a lot of work. <laughs> or don't overcomplicate it. Right? Yeah, just yeah. literally hold people accountable. For some salespeople, you might take the philosophy that, look, you have a base salary and you have a commission. One philosophy is to say that your base salary isn't, isn't a given. You get your base salary for doing the following things. You need to hit this amount of activity. You need to record this information into CRM. You need to update these spreadsheets, da, 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 da. And then and only then do you earn your base salary. Everything else is sort of gravy. And I think that when you're in the earlier stages where performance is much 
less in the reps control, I think that you can put more into that base salary, you know, just requirements. And so just be really, really clear about what you expect people to do uh, and make sure that they do it. Thanks. And I, I, get, I think the, the manual whiteboard for the whole team sort of shared whiteboard, that, that would be a, a pretty good idea. Great. We're now joined by Asaf from Israel. Roy, thanks for the uh, inputs. Very uh, insightful uh, presentation. I have a question. We're the founders doing the sales currently in the company and onboarding now an SDR service or some uh, partnership salesman, uh, but uh, not a full uh, in-house. What are your recommendations for company at the more early stage that look to grow and start experiencing growth currently? but not yet are doing it with reps and monitoring the reps uh, activity. How do you monitor and improve the scalability of the sales at that time? So just to make sure I understand the question, the question is if, if you only have founders doing sales, how yeah. do you monitor and improve the performance of that engine? Do you implement any type of measurements, statistical or others, when you're doing it more of a qualitative way and not yet in the dozen uh, opportunities per week. Got it. I'll start by sharing a quick story. There's an amazing book called Total Recall, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's surprisingly one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And one of the things that he talks about is when he started weightlifting before he became Mr. Olympia, he spent a year where he did, him and his partner did hundreds of exercises as hard as they could. And the next day and the next couple of days, they would write down in a notebook every muscle or part of muscle that was in pain and what type of pain it was in after doing each exercise. Okay. Yeah. What that, so what I take away from that was that they were doing a very methodical, intentional tests, and then they were taking notes and they were reflecting on it. And they were using that learning to build a mental model of how you build your body, right? And if you think about bodybuilding, not that I'm a bodybuilder, but what they're really doing is, is they're trying to sculpt their body. Right. And so if they realize that there's a weak spot or something else, you have to know how do I, you know, what is the input that I tweak in order to to affect this output? Mm -hmm. So they spent a year doing those very intentional tests. Right. They didn't use the year to try and add mass and grow as quickly as possible or add more weight. They literally needed to understand the machine. Right. And I love that because right now you're in a learning mode. And there's a lot that you don't know. You could probably sit down with your founders, with your founding team, and make a list of 100 questions you don't know the answer to. Correct. What are the five most obvious questions that everybody has for us? What are the five biggest concerns that they have that they tell us or maybe that they don't tell us? What are the things that actually resonate with them, right? What are the things that are actually their priorities? What are the things that they care about? How do they make decisions? Who needs to be involved in these decisions? And on and on and on and on and on. And so I think that being very intentional, and, and I wish that we had done this earlier as Chorus, 
I would put together a document with all of those unknowns, right? All of those things that you don't know and what your hypothesis is and really intentional find a way to test them in those meetings. I have 63 questions Amazing. currently. Okay. Amazing, right? So I, I think that the biggest, uh, one of the most impactful things that you can do is make sure that the learning is not just being limited to the person on the call, okay? Because mm-hmm. your ability to move quickly as a company comes from everybody down to your newest engineer understanding what you understand about your market and understand about your customers. Because if they have the same mental model that you do, everything that they do in terms of product development and engineering is gonna be better informed. So some of our early stage customers, our best users of Chorus, they will record every single meeting and once a week, they will choose a meeting. They'll ask everybody to review it before that meeting. Everybody, right? Product, engineering, support, you name it. And they all get together and they listen to it together and they talk about it. And they talk about it in the context of what are we learning, right? What does it change about our understanding of the market? Why did that person ask that question? Why was that the first question that they asked after we explained this? What, is that, what do we think that means? And so you'll accelerate by ensuring everybody moves at the same pace, right? Everybody has that shared mental model. Everybody has that shared understanding of your market and how people buy. And I do think that it's more subjective, right? It's about those questions rather than all of these metrics. Because you're not you're not in a efficiency mode, right? You're in a learning mode. Correct. Great. Thank you. We're now going to be joined by Iman. Hi, uh, my name is Eamon Leonard. I'm co-founder of Boundless and we make it easy to employ people in other countries. We're very early in our process. We're, we're barely a year old and we actually, we have to do a bunch of upfront work in, in terms of how our business operates. So we establish employment infrastructure in other countries. We couldn't really sell until that was in place, but we have a bunch of that in place now. And we unfortunately properly kicked off the sales endeavor just as COVID was making its presence known in, in most of the world. So we've never been in a kind of um, a pre-COVID sales environment where we have to transition to being kind of Zoom or, or remote sales focused. And so you've kind of touched on some of this, but I wonder if, if you'd be able to expand. Knowing what you know now from your time developing and growing sales if you were if you were to start all over again let's say in march 2020 what would you do or not do what what would what would your initial processes look like and then you know how do you think that might change over time it's a great question i think you're right i think i did touch on them in the in the presentation so i'll probably just hammer some of these these points home first of all i think that it's amazing if you can open up your hiring to anywhere. I mean, that's, that's really special, right? You can find the absolute best person. So you can do that. I think that th- there is this idea that in the early days, you don't need to measure anything. You don't need to have process. Just get people in a room. They'll hustle. They'll figure it out. I'm a big believer now in systems, right? And systems allow a C player, for example, to be an A player, 
you can create a players much more consistently if you have if you have a good system. And so I would think about what are the tools and and so on that you need in order to create a great system and how can you lay those foundations early on. When you're all remote, you save money on things like office space and whatever else, but that money doesn't just go straight to your pocket, right? Or or stay in the bank account. I think it it requires you to invest in other areas, specifically operations. And so I would think about what are the tools and the reporting and the processes and so on that you could put in place really, really early on so that you can you can get to that recipe of what success looks like. So it's not just a guess. It's not just that you hire three people and one of them works out, but you don't know why, right? You hire those three people initially, and maybe you have a hypothesis that says, look, in order for us to be successful, we need to do this much activity, we need to see this much conversion, we need to have this many meetings, and so on and so forth. And you can just track all of that stuff. So I think I would have started with that much, much earlier, setting expectations, understanding the funnel, and so on. And then the the second part was the answer to the earlier question, which is get everybody together listening to these calls and understanding what's happening in the market together. Too often, sales is just on its own kind of figuring things out. And then you might have one meeting where they convey some information that's very, very different from listening to the voice of the customer. It's very, very different from having everybody in the business recognize that our goal is to add 20 customers. And so in the early days, especially the single biggest point of leverage that you have is building the right thing, right? It's not like you have a million at bats where you just need to crank out 50 features. And so I think the more people deeply, deeply, deeply understand your buyer and their problems, the better you make those decisions, the, the, the more aligned people are, the better, the better off you'll be. We're now joined by Sar. Hi, Roy. Thank you for a great session. Thank you, Gil and Anne, for arranging that. Just a quick uh, question. I was wondering in terms of the information that you guys are gathering, statistic you, you showed before. Is there any interesting observation, insight around the data session right now or the meeting session in terms of length? Did it shorten? Are people taking more time now because they have more time? I'm curious if you have any insights on that. I don't remember off the top of my head. If we do have any of that data, it would be on chorus.ai slash the daily briefing. What I do know is that people are still taking meetings and and I think that our meetings are typically 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or 60 minutes. And we haven't seen a major change when it comes to those types of meetings. People are still willing to make the time, but they're not getting double booked. I just think that right now people are having a lot of back-to-back meetings, which is just something to be aware of. And this is sales 101, but at the beginning of the meeting, it's always good practice to simply ask, hey, Anne, you know, we're scheduled to talk for the next 60 minutes until one o'clock. You know, is that still good for you? Will you need to leave early to prepare for your next meeting? And just get that clarity at the beginning of the meetings that you don't run out of time. Because just like before, when you have somebody on the phone or in a Zoom, that's the time to get everything planned. You don't want to let them out of the meeting without having those next steps organized. So just being really clear on on how much time you do have is just more important, but it's a standard yeah. standard thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, to a degree, I felt it at the beginning, I don't know, it, uh, of COVID, everyone had a bit more time. So every time you ask, people were more relaxed, they were willing to take a bit of a longer type of uh, conversation. 
maybe it changed a bit over the last, uh, I don't know, couple of weeks. So that's why I was wondering, but completely agreed. Thank you, Sar. And thanks, Roy. This was awesome. And thanks for going over time. Really appreciate it. And I guess you've, you've added a new, a new god to the pantheon of venture, which is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So next time I'm trying to figure out a sales cycle, I will just ask, what would Arnie do? But I, I actually thought that that story was, was very, very helpful because it, it kind of illustrates the, the learning dynamic that people need to build into their companies and their processes in the early stages. And I think one of the things that, that I found is that companies often, even if it's working, they don't really know why it's working, so they can't scale. And I think that confidence, when you see that as a VC, you're always looking in from the outside, but you can sense that the shift in tone when a founder starts to know for sure that it's working. It's very different than having, I think I know why it's working. That when, when they know, they know. And, and it's quite a dramatic shift. And anything founders can do to accelerate their, their journey down that path is, is probably the most important thing, whether it's in sales or in product or anything else. So Roy, thank you so much for sharing some of these insights. Chorus is an awesome company. It's a great story. We look forward to seeing great things. And thank you everyone for joining us. Thanks, Anne, for arranging it all. Thanks, Roy, for the time, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Next week, we have a session with Francesca Danzi, who was Chief Client Officer at Tony Birch. She's going to be talking about the digital transformation of retail, a super interesting uh, topic for a lot of people, particularly timely now. And I know, I know a lot of founders are building companies that try to sell into the retail world, and that's, that's been shifting dramatically. So again, thank you all for joining us, and see you next time. Cheers. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>